How's it going, guys? My name is Will Holdren, host of your Willpower podcast, and today we have a very special guest, Ben Golliver. Now, Mr. Golliver works for the Washington Post as a national NBA writer, and he is also the co-host of the Open Floor podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, hey, it's my pleasure, but don't call me Mr. Golliver. I'm not that old, I promise. I haven't even hit 40 yet, so you can call me Ben, all right? All right, sounds good. To start off, I'd like to ask my guests all the same question. So what motivates you to get out of bed every day to do what you do? Well, for me, I think it's just a pure love of two things, a basketball and writing. I mean, those are the two things that have really kind of been my driving forces here for the last, you know, 12 years since I've been a sports writer. I love basketball ever since I was a little kid and my dad played basketball in high school and he kind of passed that love of the game down to me. I got really lucky in that I was uh, born and raised in Beaverton, Oregon, which is sort of like known as the home of Nike and and pretty close to Portland where the Trailblazers uh, were really good when I was a kid going to the finals, you know, going off, uh, facing off against Michael Jordan, uh, you know, in some fam- uh, famous showdowns. So that kind of incubated my interest in basketball. And then I think, you know, everybody's good at something. And for me, it was always writing. And so I've tried to structure my life here professionally uh, around what I love to do. And so you know, for, for me right now, that means, you know, going to like four or five, six basketball games a week here in Los Angeles, where I live, going to see the Clippers and Lakers play. And then it also means, you know, usually writing, you know, three, four five pieces a week uh, about what's happening in the NBA at large, whether it's, uh, you know, superstar level uh, guys, you know, playing well, whether it's a trade that should happen or, uh, you know, whether it's a profile of an executive, it, it's a nice mix and a nice balance of things I get to write about. Uh, but for me, what gets me out of bed, uh, it, it's being able to see you know, and interact with uh, elite basketball players, NBA professional players, and then being able to tell their stories. Yeah, I mean, that is a dream because like, I've always wanted to meet some of those NBA players too. And that's really cool how you get to do that for your job, which would be really fun. Um, you said that you you really like writing. And I'm just wondering, when you were younger, did you have aspirations to be like other things or did you always want to be like a writer and a reporter? I'll tell you, I had no clue what I wanted to do. Uh, You know, professionally, when I was a kid, I thought maybe politics. I thought maybe, uh, you know, being a lawyer. My mom was a lawyer. And so that was interesting to me. Um, I'm kind of, you know, an argumentative person. You know, I, I like to, you know, debate and do those kinds of things. So I thought maybe that could be a path for me. Um, when I got to college, uh, I was in a creative writing program. So it wasn't a uh, you know, it wasn't a journalism program. It was more like fiction and poetry. And I really enjoyed my classes. I really bonded with my classmates and my professors. I kind of felt like kindred spirits, but I wasn't sure at that time, could this even be a career, right? Like it's so hard to make it as a writer. Are you going to be this just genius who writes a novel and, and gets it published? I mean, to me, that just seemed kind of intimidating or maybe out of reach. And so I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I was working in marketing uh, for a smaller business uh, just outside Portland, Oregon, after I graduated from college. And the Blazers won the rights to the number one pick in the draft in 2007. And I knew this was going to be a huge deal because the Trailblazers hadn't been very good. Um, They needed an injection of talent. And they were going to have the the option to draft between uh, Greg Oden or Kevin Durant. And both of those guys were seen as like big time players, like, you know, guys who could change your whole franchise. 
So that very night, just kind of on a on a whim, I went home from work and started a blogspot site called draftkevindurant.blogspot.com. And I spent the next month of my life just trying to argue for the Blazers to draft Kevin Durant because I was so sure he was wow. going to be the, the right player for the franchise. And, uh, you know, as it turned out, he has had you know, a Hall of Fame career and the guy they ended up drafting was Greg Oden. Uh, who you know ran into some injury issues and off-court stuff, and, and he's actually fallen out of the league. So by starting that site, I think I showed some initiative, and I think I also uh, you know made a pretty compelling argument about which direction they should have gone. Luckily, I, I was right in hindsight, and that just kind of helped me put put me on the map as a writer. So I, I started covering the the Blazers, uh, you know, from that point forward in 2007. But you know, I wasn't ever you know really uh, in the writing. Uh, lane until years after I graduated from college. So what I always tell people, especially like yourself, I mean, clearly you're already in the media game, you know, you're excited. Just realize you're way ahead uh, of pace, right? Like, you know, you're, you're lapping me at this point in my life. I was still trying to figure out who I wanted to be. And I also tell uh, people who are your age, who are maybe, you know, trying to find out uh, what the right path is for them. You know, you don't need to rush it, right? You're going to fall into it eventually. You'll, you'll find out where you're supposed to be uh, at some point. Uh, you know, don't feel the pressure to make a decision early on because I never really did feel that pressure uh, and it worked out okay for me. Yeah. And to be honest, like I still don't really know what I want to do with my life. I mean, like different things that I'm trying, you know, like my book and stuff is just all avenues to see if I actually like it or not. I think that's the best thing for people to do is just to actually experiment with things because you never know what you like in the end. Like you said, like you didn't know that you were going to be a writer when you were 10 years old, but growing up, I mean, you learned to like writing. So that's interesting. But so I know that uh, you went to John Hopkins. So I'm just wondering what was the major factor that made you want to go to Johns Hopkins? Um, obviously, it's a school with a you know a great reputation and really some great programs. Uh, the, you know, it was located in the city. It was located far away from my home, which was actually a big deal for me when I was a high schooler. I didn't want to be the guy who stayed at home, and I wanted to just kind of go out and explore the world. And I thought it kind of had like global reputation, and uh, it was on the East Coast, so it was just you know something different for me. Um, I liked the the school's international relations and political science programs. And then, like I mentioned, I fell into the uh, writing seminars program, which is one of the best undergraduate writing programs in the country. And I think a lot of people know Johns Hopkins for the medical research and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And for me, it was uh, it was great to find uh, a place where you had a lot of really dedicated professors who were willing to kind of, you know, take you step by step by step uh, in almost like a pre-professional setting for a writer. And obviously people who go to medical school, that's a long, intense process to become a doctor. And, and, you know, you really have to commit to it. And you're basically kind of, you know, your your entire teens and 20s are almost going in towards, uh, you know, that professional pursuit. And with the writing program they had there, it was it was very similar. It was like, okay, here's what we expect from freshmen, and then by your senior year, we expect you to be able to put together, you know, a, a, a senior project that's basically a written book, right? And so that's um, no small task. It required a lot of discipline. It required a lot of time and and effort and an open mind. Um, and for me, I, I realized pretty quickly after I got to uh, campus that that was going to be a good spot for me. So. Um, you know, that's kind of why I chose there. It was, um, you know, certainly on one of the, the few schools that I applied to. And, and after I visited, it just felt like a really good fit. Yeah, that's interesting. I know a lot of kids like myself that we still aren't really sure where we want to go. And there's a lot of questions going into it, like how much debt is going to come out with it if we get this degree from this school. 
And um, I think one of the major questions with a bunch of kids my age nowadays is, like, like I said, how much debt they will have coming out of this college. So I'm just wondering, from your perspective, how much debt is too much for one college? Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not an expert on that subject whatsoever. Um, I, all I can tell you is that I have always viewed uh, my college degree as a real asset for me. It's come up in basically every job interview that I've ever done, uh, including the one that I had with the Washington Post just last year. I mean, it was a, a topic of conversation. They wanted to know, you know, how'd you pick Hopkins? What'd you get out of it? How did it change you as a person? I mean, those kinds of questions. Um, yeah. You know, I also think that. It, what even more important than that, though, is that going to Johns Hopkins instilled kind of a workaholic mentality in me that I think was already there, but it helped kind of add to it. And, you know, to be a, a journalist, like you're working almost year round for the NBA. It's like an 11 month season. Uh, you know, I'm I'm writing and I'm doing multiple podcasts. You know, I'm not really getting weekends off. You know, every single night I'm staying up until 11 or 12, you know, sometimes even later than that writing. And it's not built for everyone, right? And I think at Hopkins, the type of students that they attract are very dedicated, very committed. Yeah. And so to me, that it just kind of penciled out that way where it got me into the right mentality. Uh, it certainly, I think, has been helpful during the interview process. Uh, and, you know, it's also a situation where uh, it helped push me to become kind of the best, the best version of myself. But in terms of the financial calculations and all that, I think that's kind of a personal decision. For me, I would go back and do it again if I could. Um, okay. I think that it it just molded me. It was that important. Um, but I think that that kind of conversation you should be having with your parents and you should okay. be having with uh, you know a trusted guidance, guidance counselor at your school, uh, your high school, if you've got one. Um, don't take on debt lightly. Uh, for sure, I think that it's easy to you know, fall in love with a certain school's name, or it's easy to uh, fall in love with a, a vision of what your life could be like if you go to a certain school. And I think you're right to be asking questions about debt. It definitely paid off for you to go to Johns Hopkins with all the jobs that you've had in the future. Um, so what was it like being a senior writer at Sports Illustrated? Well, I grew up reading Sports Illustrated magazine since I was basically as soon as I could read, right? So my relationship with SI goes back, I'm 36 now, probably goes back 30 years. I mean, I was reading Sports Illustrated for kids and I got the regular magazine. So it was kind of always a dream destination for me. Yeah. Um, I had to work my way up there too, though. When I first started there uh, in 2012, I was uh, doing a lot more shorter type uh, posts, you know, uh, you know, some people might call them blogs, just basically like quick reaction type posts. And then the occasional feature here and there. Uh, by the time I left, uh, basically last year, my job was much more oriented around longer form pieces, uh, profiles, you know, magazine type writing, which is just a different type of writing. It's more time intensive. Um, you know, you're, you're able to focus and, and dive deeper into your specific subjects rather than um, just trying to get things out quickly. So it was a nice evolution for me. Uh, I loved working for SI because, um, you know, it, it, it was a destination, I think, for years and years for people who just love the sports, uh, you know, and, and especially basketball. I think it's always been known as a basketball uh, yeah. oriented uh, magazine. I mean, that's not to say anything like bad about the football coverage or any of the other coverage, but uh, the lineage of amazing basketball writers at SI goes back just decades and I grew up reading them. And so it was very cool to, you know, get to learn from guys like Chris Ballard and Lee Jenkins, who I think are really considered to be at the top of their craft in, in terms of how they, you know, write profiles or, or feature stories. So I got a ton out of it. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget it. I was at SI 
as a writer for I think six years, and I've been doing podcasts with SI for the last uh, you know three or four years. And um, I think it's just a great creative environment. One thing that I I always appreciated about them is they really let it be about the writer. There wasn't a lot of stories, you know, really ever being dictated to me by the you know bosses or by the editors. It was very much. Um, kind of organic. If I had a story I wanted to do, they would be very supportive of it rather than telling me what I needed to do. Oh, you have to go write this story. Oh, we need something about this. Um, you know, it was a very, uh, you know, free or freeing place. Uh, you know, and ultimately, you know, a lot of writers want creative control, right? We don't want to be uh, told what to do. And I think, you know, a lot of the best companies out there in terms of, you know, in the media industry are the ones that kind of entrust and empower their writers to find the stories and to tell those stories. And certainly from my time at SI, that was one of their biggest strengths is they, they always empowered me and they always entrusted me uh, in terms of what was important. Uh, and they always stood behind me. You know, if I, if I thought something was a big deal and nobody else was writing about it, they would have my back and make sure it got written. Yeah. I think that's super interesting. Cause I remember being um, like when I was younger and I always read the sports illustrated magazines too. And I didn't really read much, but whenever I picked up a magazine, I mean, it was usually Sports Illustrated because uh, I, I love the basketball aspect of it. I love just reading about those kind of things. So that was super fun for me. Um, and then later, you decided to join the Washington Post. So why did you decide to switch your career path and join the Washington Post? Yeah, I mean, the, it wasn't a huge, you know, crazy change, right? I mean, I'm still basically doing the same job that I did, which is, you know, covering the NBA thoroughly. What I liked about the post was, um, you know, the steadiness of ownership and kind of the commitment, um, you know, from the whole organization to the news. You know, obviously we're in kind of a politically charged climate, and here in the last couple of years, I think the post has just really stood out as, you know, a beacon of truth uh, and a place where you know really important stories are being written uh, kind of across the spectrum, uh, whether it's politics, international affairs, and everything else, and. You know, this year has been kind of a good example where the NBA got into this big controversy with China because yeah. one of their executives uh, made a comment that was seen as kind of, uh, you know, pro Hong Kong and anti China. And it turned into this giant, you know, weeks long story um, where, you know, it's costing the NBA potentially, you know, tens of millions of dollars because of this uh, tweet that Daryl Morey, the Houston Rockets GM, put out. And yeah. I think at some places uh, or some other media outlets, uh, there was a real cautious approach to that story. They didn't want to offend anybody. And obviously in some cases, like they're business partners with the NBA. So they don't want to like, uh, you know, put themselves too far out there. But at the post, I mean, they understood that, you know, that's a really big story from the international and foreign relations perspective. And so you know, I wrote a whole bunch of stories on it. We actually had one story that was written partially by me and partially by somebody who lives and works in Hong Kong. So they were sort of on the ground with the protesters uh, that kind of sparked this whole thing. And it was just a you know a really exciting you know uh, journalistic challenge to to be diving into, and so uh, you know those kinds of you know larger than life or, or bigger than sports type stories are things that have always interested in me, and I think that you know with the post they're encouraging me to pursue those kinds of things, and uh, you know they have a lot of muscle behind it too, which is which is helpful. Um, but I like being uh, you know kind of a one man band too. That's part of it, and I, at the post. We have really one national NBA writer. It's not like a huge staff, like uh, you know, even at ESPN or the Atlanta, uh, the Athletic, or even SI, where they have multiple people all covering the NBA. Uh, we have a great Wizards beat writer in Candace Buckner, but then it's sort of my job to cover the rest of the league. 
And I like that. You know, I like that freedom. I like being able to pick and choose my own topics. Uh, and I like, uh, you know, being able to cover the really important moments that count, whether it's, you know, the all-star game or the finals, the playoffs, uh, and the post has helped me do that. So um, you kind of throw all those things together. Uh, and that's why I decided to uh, leave SI and join the post. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that story with the whole Hong Kong thing, like that, that was even bigger than sports. Like that article is more important for like even societal things that are going on in our world today. And um, I'm just wondering, when you were posting these articles about that, um, that incident, um, did you, do you ever receive backlash or criticism for people out there that are reading your articles? Oh, for sure. There's no question about it. Um, you know, it's a, a delicate balance for any you know, media figure or, or personality, whatever you want to call it, in terms of how you handle the feedback. You know, for me, reading a lot of negative feedback can actually be kind of damaging and demoralizing and distracting. And so yeah. I do try to shield myself from a lot of it. For example, especially on Twitter, I don't read my replies. Um, and I think that's just healthier. Uh, you know, if people need to contact me, my email address is easy to find. Like, you know, it's not like I'm hiding. Um, but I think if you, if you expose yourself to too much negativity, it can really have a, you know, a, a damaging impact on your mental health. And so for that reason, you know, I try not to do it. Uh, we got a lot of emails, a lot of tweets, you know, a lot of messages uh, all around on the China coverage, uh, you know, no doubt. Uh, but the nice thing is, you know, you're not by yourself. Like I've got editors, uh, you know, multiple layers of editors who help put the stories together to help make sure we're being fair, to fact check things and to put them out in the best way possible. And so I think that certainly helps. And then a lot of times I just have to remind myself, they're not mad at me, right? It's the old shoot the messenger thing, right? You're just the yeah. messenger a lot of the time. So don't take it personally if people are upset. Uh, they're upset about the topic matter, not necessarily at, really at the journalist. And uh, if they're shouting at you, it means it matters to them. And so that means it's newsworthy. And, it, and that means it's something you should continue to pursue as a writer. Um, and those are some kind of tricks and techniques that I use you know, personally to deal with that kind of feedback. Um, but if people take the time to send me thoughtful, well thought out, uh, messages of criticism, a lot of times I do try to reply to those, to, whether I'm, you know, explaining myself or clarifying or trying to, um, uh, you know, even just let them know that I'm hearing them, you know, to me, I think that's a productive uh, use of time as well. And it, it's something that, you know, if you're kind of engaging in like a marketplace of ideas, it, it's kind of your responsibility. Yeah. And I know, cause you're a writer and you get judged a lot and you're, are you okay with being judged because that's kind of your job, like posting all these articles and stuff? But how can other people get over the fear of being judged within their lives? It's very tricky. I mean, I think the most important thing for me is to be proud of what the work the work that I'm doing and to be cool with the work that I'm doing. Right? Like, don't put something up there that uh, you can't look at yourself in the mirror about. Right? And yeah. usually if I'm comfortable with the, with the with the kind of work that I'm doing, that I feel like I put enough time in, that it's good enough, that it meets my own standards, you know, usually I'm my own harshest critic so that I'm kind of okay with whatever anyone else wants to say about it. I know I'm never going to please anybody or everybody. I know that there's going to be people who are going to have different opinions and, and takes than I do. Um, but for me, it's always about, you know, kind of satisfying my own high standard. Uh, and if I can do that, then I kind of let the rest just kind of slide off my back if possible. Um, but like I said, if that's a harder process, you know, if you do take negative criticism personally, I think what's really important to do is to uh, limit or at least kind of organize your exposure to it. If you're logging on to Twitter, you know, 
15 times a day and all you're seeing is negative replies, that becomes a part of your habit. And now, you know, you're going to be internalizing those kinds of messages and it will affect you as a creative person. It will change your perspective. It will maybe even change your motivation. And that's, um, you know, a really, really dangerous thing. It's just like in basketball, you know, a lot of the high end players, whether they go through a trade or maybe they have a down season, what they end up always kind of coming back to is this idea of they want to rediscover their love for the game, right? It's like, how can you find that motivation for like, you know, the same kind of pure motivation you had before you made it to the NBA when you were just a 12 or 13 year old kid who all they wanted to do all day long was play basketball. And for me, that's a constant process as a writer too. I'm always trying to rediscover my love for writing uh, or for, you know, commenting uh, on a podcast or for, you know, just the, the, the grind of going through the games, right? Always try to recenter yourself and get back to, you know, that, that pure motivation because your passion for what you do has to come through in what you do. Otherwise there's just too much competition. You know, people won't be able to find you. They won't be interested in what you have to say. If you don't care, nobody else is going to care. And so I'm very protective uh, of myself in those ways. I won't let myself read, you know, 50 messages from angry people who are just calling me names and telling me to, you know, go, go jump off a roof or whatever else. Like I, I don't need that part in my life because it's a distraction and because it, it makes me, uh, you know, less settled as a human being. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think what you said is also very interesting because one of the things that I've been saying too is that never take advice, never take criticism from someone that you wouldn't take advice from. Because I mean, there's so many people out there just trying to tear you down, just demoralize you or demotivate you. And I mean, that's just that's just what some of these people do. And it kind of, it can get to you. And then like you said, it just destroys your motivation. And it's hard to get anything done that you want to get done. And I, I just think that's an interesting point to comment on. And so, no, it's a great, that's a great mantra. And by the way, people should take advice from people that want to give them advice and that they trust. And that's a really hard thing too. It's tough for me because I get locked in. I think, okay, well, I care about this more than everyone else does, you know, like my own work. So therefore I trust myself no matter what. And that's not always the best approach either. Like if you have people in your life who are trusted confidants and they're saying, Hey, you need to rethink this, right? And this point that you made, it didn't land the right way. And this could be an editor. This could be a family member. This could be a close friend. Um, it could be a professional colleague who's a sounding board. If they're taking the time to try to steer you and maybe away from harm and, and towards a better place, you need to listen to those people with an open mind and then you need to take their advice to heart. Yeah, I think that's another good point. And that, that brings up the whole thing about constructive criticism because I know Obviously, not all criticism is a bad thing, like you just said, and it can be constructive to help you later on in the future. And sometimes these people are just there to protect you to make sure you don't do the same mistake over and over again in the future, which is interesting. And so with you being a journalist and a writer and all this, um, I'm sure your your schedule is very busy. So I'm just wondering, like, what does your daily schedule look like? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I try to be as efficient as possible. I'd say... Uh, you know, I, most of my days are structured around attending games. I'll usually try to get to a game, uh, you know, around 4 p.m. if it's a 7.30 tip, just so I'm there early before, you know, pregame interviews and all that. A lot of time I'm writing until, you know, like I said, you know, midnight, 1, 2 a.m., something like that. Uh, usually I'm taping podcasts or I'm doing other research or just reading what's going on uh, in the mornings. And then I try to carve out you know, about a 90 minute to two hour window middays to make sure I can get some exercise in, just clear my head, listen to podcasts, 
um, and just kind of, uh, you know, make sure that I'm not getting ground down and, and just trying to have some level of a, you know, kind of a work-life balance. But, you know, during the season, that cycle repeats basically every day, you know, six or seven days a week. Um, you know, if I'm traveling during the playoffs, it, it kind of gets even more hectic. You know, a lot of times I'll do, you know, more traveling like in, in April, May and June, kind of when the NBA is, you know, really getting close to kind of crowning a champion. Um, and so in those situations, uh, it's less of a routine and it's more of just kind of like a day by day. You just kind of like hold on for dear life because you might have a flight from San Francisco to Cleveland then from Cleveland to Houston, Houston to San Francisco. I mean, it, you, know, you can't really predict it. Um, but you know, it's, it's an around the clock all in type investment. You know, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. I know a lot of people in journalism, you know, kind of has a reputation for being a place where there's a lot of burnout. Um, and so I'm very conscious of that. And I understand, you know, I'm working hours that a lot of people wouldn't want to, but I feel really blessed to do it because the competition to get these kinds of jobs really hard. And so I just put my head down and keep going. Yeah, that's interesting. And the fact that you stay up that late, on some nights, that's that's crazy. Like that's unfathomable to me, because I need those eight hours of sleep. But um, that's crazy. And so no, sleep's so important. All- it's the, still the most underrated thing, though. And that, and like that's good. Try to get your eight hours. I mean, I, usually if I can get six and a half or seven, I'm feeling really good. If I get less than that, I'm not performing, you know, to my capabilities. And you yeah. know, don't let people tell you you have to work twenty hour days. That's just not true. Um, and it's, it's bad for your body. And so, you know, having a a sleep routine is super, super, uh, important to, to health. And so I wasn't trying to say that I'm just saying, you know, some nights it gets a little bit later and, you know, I try to make it up usually in the morning. So if I have to stay up super late, uh, I might sleep in a little bit just to make sure that I still am feeling energized and juiced up when I do wake up. Yeah, because there's a lot of influencers on social media and stuff that say like, oh, you got to stay up till 4 a.m. and then wake up at 6 a.m. just to get that grind in. But I mean, that's really not the case because there's enough time in the day to do what you want to do. You just got to make the time and be able to uh, delegate the time to what you want to be doing and what's important to you. I think that's an important thing that people should realize. But um so when yeah, you're for at- sure. No, we're, I mean, work smarter, not harder, right? Like that's kind of the, the mantra. And I, I believe in that 100%. Try to make yourself as efficient as possible during the day so that you can save yourself at night. Um, but, you know, it, it just depends on your work schedule. Like if a game starts at 730, it's not going to end until 1030, which means they're not going to be done talking until 1130. So, you know, there's not really any wiggle room, you know, and uh, yeah. that part and the travel part are probably the two hardest parts of being an NBA writer. Yeah. And for you to be able to go to like all these games and meet all these cool people, like that's completely like so cool. And I'm just wondering, like, who is the most fascinating person that you've been able to meet as a reporter? Man, that's a, a really tough question. I think of the guys who kind of do the the same type of jobs that we're doing. Uh, I would say probably Charles Barkley. Now I know he was in the news because he had some unfortunate comments this week, and I know he had to apologize for them. So I put that out first, but. Um, it's amazing that a guy who hasn't played in the NBA basically in more than 20 years is still regarded as like the premier NBA commentator. And I think a big part of that is just his incredible sense of humor. It's just kind of a one of a kind sense of humor. Uh, I think part of his appeal is that he is a little bit old school. So, uh, you know, an audience that might be more traditionalist rather than modern, uh, feels like he's kind of a voice for them, but he also brings a lot of just inside the game knowledge because you know he's been around the league uh, for basically his entire adult life, and 
you know, relevance is like one of these topics that people always bring up. How do you stay relevant? How do you get on the map once you're there? Like, how do you make sure you don't kind of get outflanked and somebody else pushes you off? And I've just been blown away by the fact that he can be a Hall of Fame level player and then follow that up with like, you know, a 20 or 30 year career as a commentator where, you know, whatever he says is as is basically a headline. It's newsworthy um, by any standard. So I would say, uh, you know, kind of in terms of like, especially professionally, the guys that I kind of respect the most. It's not like I agree with him on every subject, but I would yeah. put him in that mix for the most interesting and also just kind of uh, the most inspiring, you know, type of people in the industry. Yeah, that'd be so cool to meet him too. Because like I said before, I'm a Sixers fan and he was a 76er. So that'd be so cool. But um, So I was just wondering for my perspective as a teenager and for other younger people that are listening to this, like what advice would you have for them to be successful in the future in whatever field that they want to go into? Well, the first thing I'd say is work as hard as possible in school, get everything you can out of it. You know, I know that sometimes it can be a drag, you know, sometimes there's other things that you'd rather be doing. Um, but that's when you start to build your, your positive habits, right? Is to make sure that like you're respecting your teachers, uh, you're, you're putting everything you've got into your homework assignments. You're trying to get the best possible grades that you can. I think that's the way you want to live your life just in general. You know, you don't want to be halfway doing it. You're never going to be happy with that. Um, so, you know, to me, just, you know, pour everything you've got into everything that you're doing. Um, and then I'd say, try to, you know, do self-analysis, right? What are you good at? What are your strengths? What makes you happy? What, um, you know, like you were saying earlier, what gets you up in the morning? What are your passions? Ask yourself those kinds of questions and then don't be super concerned about how am I going to get to the end destination 30 years from now, right? Okay. Ask yourself more practical questions like, all right, if I want to be a sports writer, how do I get my foot in the door? If I want to be a banker, how do I get my foot in the door? What are the steps here? Who in my industry can I contact and network with who can help me take those kinds of steps and realize, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, for me to get to the Washington Post, it took 12 years, you know, like that's a pretty long time. And if you had told me when I started that, hey, man, this is 2007 and 12 years, you're going to be at the Washington Post. I never would have believed myself. Right. Like I would have said, that's crazy. It's, it's not going to happen. That's nuts. Yeah. So I think it's very important to set yourself up for success by, you know, picking your path. And then realizing it's going to be one step at a time, right? It's not going to happen overnight. Um, even for the most talented people, it's going to take years to kind of get where they want to be. Um, and then once you get there, you know, if you have the right mentality, you're going to want even more. And I feel that th the same way right now. It's not like I want to uh, just settle for this and, you know, this is going to be who I am for the next 60 years. You know, of course, you're going to want to keep pushing yourself and, and trying to get even better and better and better. So, um, you know, th those are kind of my, my basic mantras is, you know, Put 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 your all into what you're doing. Uh, look at wh who you are as a person, your strengths and weaknesses, and try to put yourself onto a path where you're going to play your strengths. Um, and then also just be patient, uh, but make sure that you're taking steps towards what your ultimate goal will be. I think if you don't do those things, uh, you're setting yourself up for a lot of success. Okay, yeah, that's great advice. And a lot of kids have different dreams, like you said, like what they want to be when they grow up. So I'm just wondering. Are you living the life now that you dreamt of as a kid? I didn't even know this was like a real job, to be honest with you. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to read the sports writers, but I never had the the dream of trying to be a sports writer, um, yeah. like almost until I actually started writing in 2007, frankly. So, um, 
you know, I give a lot of credit to like Bill Simmons. You know, he was a, a very influential and popular sports writer. He's he's kind of shifted out into more podcasts uh, with the Ringer. Um, but I think that he gave a lot of kids sort of a my age hope that like, hey, this is something you could go out there and do it if you just really love sports and you're kind of funny and you have a good voice and personality. Hey, like hop in and, um, you know, you can uh, you can turn this into a career. Um, but for me, no, when I was a kid, uh, like I said earlier, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, I could e- easily envision myself being a lawyer, but I'll be honest, I think I'm having a lot more fun right now than I would have been uh, if I was a lawyer. And I think I'm, uh, you know, I'm happier than I probably would have been if I was a lawyer too. Yeah, I think that's a, one of the most important things in life too, just to be happy with whatever you choose to do. So um, I just have one more question for you. So which NBA team do you think will win the 2020 NBA Finals? It's a great question. I picked the Clippers before the season. I'm going to stick with them, uh, but I think that they've taken it so slow and steady uh, yeah. in terms of their guys' health and they're like load managing Kawhi Leonard and they didn't rush Paul George back that we really haven't seen the best uh, version of them quite yet. And I actually think that the Lakers, you know, with LeBron and Anthony Davis have probably looked more impressive, more consistently than the Clippers have uh, so far this season. So I think both those teams are in the mix. I think people forget about the Milwaukee Bucks. You know, it's a small market organization. They've definitely got a chance. Uh, your Philadelphia 76ers, you know, they definitely have a chance. Uh, and then yeah. also, I would say the Houston Rockets. Uh, you know, they've they've kind of been back on the map a little bit this year. I would say those are the kind of the, the select five teams that could potentially win the title. But I think if everybody's healthy and everybody's up to speed come playoff time, I think the Clippers are the best team. Um, they've got great balance on offense and defense. They have a really good uh, depth in terms of you know being able to have starters, but then also a bench that's quality. Um, they can play big. They can play small. And they don't really have a lot of egos. Everybody's on the same page. And so those are all characteristics that I look for when I'm trying to say, okay, which teams can win the title? And they yeah. just check every single box. All right, that's interesting. And time will tell. So um, before we run out of time, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I just appreciate you having me on here. I wish you the best of luck with your podcast. And, and the fact that you wrote a book is incredible. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, Ben Golliver, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Take care. No way that we go is a one-way street. Nothing that we love is a one-day key. And if we gon' do it, we gon' do this now. And if we say we gonna, we gon' hold this down. No way that we go is a one-way street. Nothing that we love is a one-day key. And if we gon' If we say we gonna, we gon' hold it.